I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. <laughs> I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I saw. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, Gorn, bears, chickens, and things to episode 10 of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Jarman. And I am Steve. We're here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. Jarman, what are they? They are the Muppets and Star Trek, of course. And Ooh. we'll be doing one-to-one reviews of the Muppet Show and Star Trek, the original series. And this week, we have the Muppet Show with special guest Harvey Corman and the original series episode, The Corbamite Maneuver. Gosh, I love this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be so good. And but before uh, we get into that, Jarman, do we have any feedback? Ex- we do. Isn't it crazy? Uh, from yeah. some kind of Garf on YouTube. Good old Our Garf. Number one, number one fan. Uh, so he says, he's mentioning, we, he used the word pedantry before. I think that's the first way I said it. Cause he says, pedantry, your first pronunciation was correct. Anyone who's, who disagrees with me can fight me. And he says, okay, fair. Uh, well, that's my years long streak of not having to think about Gary Busey ruined. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, well, we're going to be bringing it up way more. Yeah. Garf, uh, keep that. It's going to keep coming. Um, he says, I'm currently eating my words from when I said they used many songs barely documented today. It's delicious. Great job on the music trivia, Steve. <laughs> I forgot what he mean by, means by that. Well, he was talking about that there's a lot. There was a song in an early episode that I couldn't find any information on. Mm. Uh, and, and he just was mentioning that a lot of them were rare and kind of weird for the time even, let alone now. Uh, but I've been doing some real hardcore digging. <laughs> That's for, true. For a lot of this stuff. So far, only the one song you couldn't really find any details on. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so that's pretty good. But thanks, Garf. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. And everybody else, feel free to write in. You could always uh, send us an email at muppettrek at a playonnerds.com or just send us a message on Twitter or YouTube. Facebooks, Facebooks. or Google Plus Us. Where Is that still a thing? No, it's not a thing anymore. No, it's not. Don't Google Plus Us. <laughs> so for our Muppet Show episode this week, we have guest star Harvey Corman. What can you tell us about Harvey Corman? Well, Harvey Corman was a great comedic performer. He's best recalled for his performances on. 10 seasons of the Carol Burnett show for which he won four Emmy awards. Wow. He was a regular in Mel Brooks films, including blazing saddles and Dracula dead and loving it. And he even appeared in the dreaded 1978 star Wars holiday special that we reviewed on a play on nerd. I forgot about that. Uh, so what, but what might our, our listeners know him from later in his life? He did a bunch of voice work for uh, animated shows, including Hey Arnold and the Flintstones. But he also did the voice of the Dictabird in the live-action Flintstones movie that came out in the nineties. Oh, what a! So that's kind of that what I what I knew him from. I knew him mainly as as Hey Lamar from uh, Blazing Saddles for sure. That's fair. I yeah, I don't blame you for that. He rode a blazing saddle. Saddle. <laughs> uh, but let's get into the Muppet Show. Yes. Uh, Kermit introduces Harvey Corman, but he wants to start out on a high note. He is then surprised by a horn player that comes in and plays a hideout, a high note. We get a quick cut, cut to Statler and Waldorf uh, saying that it's better to the, the show starting out with a bang. Uh, Crazy Harry shows up to blow something up, but is stopped with two abrupt karate chops in the neck. <laughs> the opening number is the electric mayhem playing a song called love you to death which is a rocking number with also multiple explosions that happen throughout. Mm-hmm. 
Kermit then does an interview with Animal, who answers all of his questions in the form of growls and hitting his head on the drum. And in this interview, it comes up that Animal idolizes Buddy Rich, who would later host The Muppet Show. Nice. We then get, luckily, a short talking houses. As always, it is lame. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not going to be I'm not going to be apologetic about it. It is lame. Uh, next, we have our first taste of Harvey Corman playing a quintessential lion tamer in a circus act. But instead of a ferocious lion, he is training a large, timid and clumsy blue thog. And it is adorable. <laughs> Following this, we get panel discussion when they talk about the meaning of life. Harvey says that uh, that life is like a game of tennis heads bob back and forth as they argue, and this devolves into a series of terrible puns and insulting Miss Piggy. As usual. Afterwards, we're at the dance. The best joke here is that Mildred is attracted to George, and George agrees because he is also attracted to himself. Uh, Again, the Electric Mayhem regales us with a song called Sweet Tooth Jam, which is literally just a jam session. Yes. Jam! All it is. Jam! Uh, soon after, we get a lovely talk spot with Kermit and Harvey. Harvey laments that the fact that he's kind of the token person and everyone else is a Muppet and he feels lonely. So Kermit puts him into a huge chicken costume. <laughs> Finally, we're back at Veterinarian's Hospital, which I know makes Charmin happy. Yes. Amongst the puns and wordplay, a patient is knocked out with a mallet and Dr. Bob operates with shaky hands because he's so stressed out. While he gripes, the patient slowly inflates until, bam, they explode. He had the hiccups and it was killing him. Uh, We then get our weekly introduction from the Sam the Eagle for Wayne and Wanda. The song is I Get a Kick Out of You. And per usual, the song gets going, uh, just gets going as Wanda upstages Wayne and he gets fed up with her and kicks her off the stage. We get a quick cut with Harvey still in the the chicken costume, joining some sort of chicken's rights march. Yeah, wasn't clear. It's a little strange. Following this, Fozzie does his weekly act. This time he ropes Kermit in to helping him tell the funniest joke. Fozzie tells Kermit to wait for the word here and then rush in and say, good grief, the comedian's a bear. Fozzie accidentally says the word here multiple times, each time Kermit rushing in saying his line as they both get more and more frustrated with each other until they finally tell the joke, which is pretty lame. Mm. But because the setup is so funny, it's really a big laugh. (laughs) You get a quick Muppet news flash where a boxer is being interviewed because he has decided to fight himself because he has no equal. <laughs> the closing number is one of my absolute favorites. Robin, I think technically before he was Robin, sings halfway down the stairs, a really sweet song and actually a song that Jerry Nelson sung at Jim Henson's memorial to tribute Jim. Oh, okay. We get a sign off from Kermit and Harvey, who is still partly in his chicken costume and does not like being referred to as Chicken Little. And that is curtains for the Muppet show. The whole show period. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. (laughs) This episode. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the music. We've got love you to death. uh, The opening number it's by Joe Raposo. Same guy who wrote the Sesame street theme and see us for cookie. We've talked about him before. Uh, This song was originally featured on one of the two pilots, uh, the Muppet show, sex and violence. And Dr. Teeth performed it on television uh, on the tonight show in 1975 in Dr. Teeth's television debut. Ah. Uh, after the Sweet Tooth Jam, it was written by pianist Derek Scott, who was an, a, music, a musical associate for the Muppets. And in addition to playing the piano in the opening song, he was often the one really playing the piano when Rolf the dog was playing. Gotcha. Uh, he was known as a light musical composer and wrote a lot of transition and background kind of music for a ton of TV and movie productions. Uh, the one I recognize the most was 
he wrote the transition music for George Romero's 1978 Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> well, it's a very important job. You don't think about all that transitional music. That's right. I get a kick out of you written by Cole Porter. It's a jazzy standard. You all know and love. Oh, yeah. Uh, because of that, I just chose a fun Cole Porter fact. Uh, he went to Yale in the early 1900s. And while he was there, he wrote over 300 songs one of which is a fight song that Yale still plays at sporting events. Nice. Well, if you want to know more about uh, Cole Porter, there's a great movie about him uh, starring um, Kevin Klein. I forgot what it was called, but you should check it out. Hmm. After this, halfway down the stairs, lyrics by A.A. A. Milne, the creator of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, just for a reminder, son Christopher Robin married his own cousin. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> the music was by Harold Frazier Simpson, not Simpson. This was really confusing for me to find. He was a, a light musical composer who's best known for this operetta he wrote called The Maid of the Mountain, which ran for 1,352 performances in the early 19-teens. Jeez. Uh, he spent his early career as a member of a ship-owning firm, but then in his early 40s gave it up and decided to pursue music full-time. Wow. Good for him. That's right. Uh, so, Jarman, what did you think of this episode of The Muppet Show? So when I, I didn't remember the name Harvey Corman, but then when he, he, as soon as he appeared on the screen, I was like, Hedy Lamar, it's Hedy, not Hedy. <laughs> and so with how much you love blazing saddles, I knew that you would recognize. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this guy's, this is going to be great. Um, and parts of it were good, but the thing is, I think they really wasted, uh, Harvey Corman. They, they didn't, did. they didn't use him nearly enough. And, uh, and although all the musical numbers were great, uh, they didn't, I don't think they needed two Dr. Teeth numbers in this one episode. Like they could have just had one and then had done something more with Harvey Corman. His behind the scenes stuff was very just incoherent and pointless. It seemed like there's a dogs chasing him around and he was marching with chickens for no real reason. Um, yeah. I did leave a few kind of transition things out. Yeah. And it's just, there was, it was very odd. There wasn't like a whole, and he like one of his behind the scenes, uh, it was lasted like seven seconds and it was back to the, another musical number. It was like, so they really, I, the only, the best part was him being the, um, the lion tamer. Um, yeah. You get to show some of his chops, you know, but not even that was really utilizing him as enough as it should. It was more just throwing him around, you know, with uh, the dance number and everything. So yeah, just kind of a waste opportunity. So the things that were done were good, but it's just like, they could have done a lot more. Um, I, I absolutely agree okay. with everything. Uh, the lion tamer thing, you're right. It was great. It was a great way of showcasing him. He got to be big and boisterous and do a right. character. And that was great. The other thing I really didn't enjoy him in that I almost wish was longer was the Muppet news flash where he played the boxer. Yeah. I thought that was, that was good. Um, but you're right. Having two just kind of like loud indeterminate Dr. Teeth, the electric mayhem song. They were too similar. Like, yeah, they didn't need to do that. Um, um, I was, I was happy to see the return of veterinarians hospital. I was too. <laughs> I don't know why I like it so much, but I do. <laughs> you love puns, man. I get it, oh, but I'm glad I'm watching this show. Cause yeah, there's, it's full of puns. Um, oh, I did to mention just a little tiny detail that made the lion tamer, uh, ringmaster scene so much. So mm -hmm. cool. When he says, listen to me, I want full, your full attention. Um, his ears raise one at a time, then two at a time. <laughs> yeah. Give me your attention. One ear raises. I want your full attention. And the other ear raises. <laughs> that was really cute. That's probably for some reason, one of my biggest laughs of the episode. Um, and, uh, for me, the, the two best parts of the episode are, um, the joke with Fozzie and Kermit really legitimately funny. Yeah. I'm so glad you're all here. Good grief. The comedian's the bear. No, no, no. Stay off stage. But you said the word here. <laughs> the lead up was what made that work so well. 
And he says, no, he's not. He's wearing a necktie. And then uh, <laughs> Statler and Waldorf are like, I don't understand that joke. I don't speak Italian. <laughs> it's it cute. Um, and then halfway down the stair is like an iconic song from the Muppets. It's performed multiple times in multiple settings and re-recorded and redone multiple times. Um, and I just love it. I just it's will like, say it was a great musical number and it was um, it was very touching, but it just felt, felt like there was no context that's why i feel like i'm is missing in a lot of these musical numbers that maybe it's just a product of the time a lot of these 70s and 60s shows did a lot of musical numbers with no context um and so yeah. people are used to that so it's kind of jarring for a modern person who, who never watched these growing up like you did to be like this musical number had no context it just opens up with him sitting alone on a stairwell and he sings this song and they go back to the regular show and it's like that was great but what was the point of that you know it feels kind of yeah. odd and it was a weird kind of low note to end the show on as well that's true that is true but a great number on its own, just kind of in context, is kind of odd. That's oh, one of my all-time favorite songs. And like when I watched the YouTube of it, I was really excited. But in the episode, you're right. It feels weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, it is better if you're just watching that video on its own and be like, oh, that's so cool and touching and cute. And he's Aww. so adorable and sad on the little stairs, you know. But <laughs> but then in the episode, it's like, why, this, why is this in this episode, you know. So this episode, I think we can agree, not top of the heap. Not top of the heap, but not terrible. Um, no, it wasn't Florence Henderson. No, it was not Florence Henderson, which is so far the low point. Uh, Jarvin, why don't you tell us about the original series episode that we watched this week? Absolutely. So this week we have the Corbomite Maneuver, um, which with all my Star Trek knowledge, I found out this was the first episode filmed uh, after the pilots. Yes. Um, which you wouldn't be able to tell from watching this episode because we'll get into that later. But it's it feels feels very on all cylinders. Um, but some of the uniforms and stuff you can tell. Um, but it took a hmm. long time to air because it has more effects than all the episodes prior to it, it had a lot of special effects. So it took them a long time to work on that before it was released. Um, okay. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. We'll get more to trivia about that later. So the enterprise is out mapping star systems in a far out part of the galaxy when suddenly a multicolored cube approaches them in space and they try to move away from the cube, even going into warp speed, but it gets closer to them and starts emitting a dangerous level of radiation. So Kirk is forced to send the order to blow it up. And they do. It blows up. Shortly thereafter, a giant glowing sphere made up of tons of little connected spheres approaches them. And they finally get in touch with who is on this giant contraption. And it's an alien who identifies himself as Commander Baylock of the First Federation. (laughs) (laughs) And he's voiced by the guy who played the big hulking dude in the uh, underground episode we watched not long ago. Uh, Oh, yeah. What the hell was that called? I can't remember. Um, And he says that the Enterprise will be destroyed for entering First Federation space. and for destroying their marker buoy, that thing that he sent out earlier. Um, right. So Kirk tries to communicate with Baylock that they mean no harm, but Baylock won't listen and says that the Enterprise has 10 minutes until they are destroyed and to make peace with their gods. And they finally get a visual of Baylock, and he looks like a scary alien with a giant head and weird eyes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and during this whole time, there's Lieutenant Dave Bailey, who we haven't seen before or after, uh, who's in the navigation seat, and he's getting more and more stressed out about the situation. He's he's overworked, and, uh, and that becomes important later on. Uh, so Spock says the whole situation is like a game of chess, and that when one player is outmatched, the game is over. But when Kirk gets in an argument with McCoy, he gets inspired and realizes this isn't chess, it's poker. And we really get a sense of uh, what how Kirk really uh, treats situations going forward from this episode. Uh, this is when we get the titular word Corbermite because Kirk bluffs to Baylock that the Enterprise has a failsafe substance and device that if attacked 
An equal energy blast will come from the Enterprise and destroy the attacking ship. So he's totally making this crap up, making everybody yeah. smile around it. Uh, Balok eventually falls for the ruse and starts to back away from the large ship. Um, but he leaves a small ship behind and says that he will tug the Enterprise to a planet, drop off the crew, and then destroy their ship. So Kirk starts to figure out that the smaller ship might might not be as strong as a larger ship, so he might be able to break free from its tractor beam if they use enough power. So they slowly drain the ship's power as it tries to hold on to the Enterprise, and they finally break free. And this apparently leaves the small ship disabled and broke, um, and it breaks its life support systems. So it tries to send a distress call out to its larger mothership, but Ahura says that she doubts the call was strong enough to be heard, so they haven't heard it yet. Uh, Kirk decides not to flee, but to help the disabled ship, and he transports on board with McCoy and the crazy Lieutenant Bailey. Uh, they find the scary Baylock they spoke to before in the viewer screen, and he was actually a puppet, or a dummy as Kirk calls it. And that the real right. Baylock is a creepy six-year-old Clint Howard. Yay! <laughs> with hor <laughs> horrible teeth. <laughs> um, and the real Baylock, Clint Howard, explains to them that this was just a test to see what kind of character the people on the Enterprise had. And they passed the test. And he's also lonely. And he would love for one of their crew to stay on board with him so they can share information about each other's cultures. And that's kind of the goal of um, Starfleet. So they, they're really into that. Uh, so Lieutenant Bailey, who was freaking out earlier and not adjusting well to his new position on board the Enterprise, decides to stay with Baylock, and he looks very happy to do it. And so then they go their separate ways, and that's the end of the episode. Yeah. So some trivia for this. Uh, although the script instructed Leonard Nimoy to emote a fearful reaction upon his first sight of the scary Baylock, uh, the director suggested to Nimoy that he ignore what the script said and instead react with the single word, fascinating. And mm. the suggestion of this response helped refine the Spock character and provide him with a now legendary catchphrase, which is true. That's like a thing he always says is fascinating instead of reacting in some way. Uh, also, the first time we hear um, McCoy using his catchphrase, like, what am I, a doctor or a moonshallow conductor? <laughs> He'll say that for episodes going forward all the time, saying he's not this, he's that. Um, so this is kind of a fun fact. Uh, leaving sick bay after his physical when Kirk was shirtless in this episode, very gratuitously. Uh, yes. Captain Kirk passes several unnamed crew members, and one of the red shirts, played by Jonathan Goldsmith, gained worldwide fame 40 years later as a beer ad character, the most interesting man in the world. Dos <laughs> I don't always drink beer, but I do. And it's also controversy because he's not actually Latino, but he is uh, portraying a Latin man. That's right. Uh, and little Baylock, played by Clint Howard, whose brother is Ron Howard, uh, was starring mm -hmm. in The Andy Griffith Show, and they're... Um, they were being filmed right near each other as well. So that was kind of, they share a lot of scenery and stuff as well. Hmm. Um, this is also the first episode to include pointed sideburns on all of the male crew members, which becomes very iconic. Ah, okay. Yeah. It's first for a lot of things. Um, yeah. And this is the first in production order of Leonard McCoy, Lieutenant Uhura and Janice Rand appearing, but not in the actual show order. So it was their first episode they filmed. So, oh, okay. So, yeah. So, with all that being said, what did you think about this episode, Steve? Uh, so, the things I liked. Well, it was a bit thick. There was something refreshing about seeing a member of the crew freak out when facing inevitable death. That's true. <laughs> like, I know that Spock gets all the credit for being the, like, emotionless one. But a lot of the other crew, upon seeing Bailey freak out, I kind of realized also falls into that category almost. Being emotionless, kind of? Yeah, Sulu doing a countdown and Uhura just kind of sitting at her post and listening. It, it, it was sort of odd and jarring, but not in a bad way. Right. Uh, Bones and Kirk have a, dis uh, oh, 
have a discussion about Bailey at one point where it basically comes up that Kirk sees something in him and uh, that, that Bailey may have been promoted too quickly. And you think they'd come with sort of like a level of camaraderie, but Kirk is just kind of a dick to him. <laughs> yeah. And he kept like his holding explosion. his head. Like, I guess he was stressed out and stuff, but it was just kind of, it was odd. Um, I thought that was an interesting comment about like maybe what Kirk thinks of himself. Mm-hmm. Like if he sees himself in Bailey, maybe he sees himself as like this scared kid. Like is he over his head kind of thing? So while it was a weird choice, I thought it was interesting. Hmm. Uh, and then the big reveal at the end with Clint Howard was so good. <laughs> you liked it? <laughs> I really did. Because oh. at that point, you really don't know what's going on. They play so many different angles with the aliens of them being kind of overtly, um, you know, malicious and then almost haphazard seeming. Yeah. Not listening um, to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so for it to be revealed to be this like man child <laughs> thing was just so, so out of left field that I was just, I was blown away. Please have some Tranya. <laughs> uh, things I maybe didn't like as much. Mm-hmm. There were some, we- okay. So there were some, the guy who directed this also directed jaws for the revenge. Oh my God. For, I didn't know that. Just for the record. <laughs> There were some weird technical choices. Okay. The opening shot of the bridge where they did that pan out crane shot. I noticed that too. I've never seen that in Star Trek before. That was Uh, nuts. But it was really obvious because Spock then had to yell his first line (laughs) because they couldn't put a boom mic over him. Right. Because of this weird craning shot. So if you watch Spock literally screams his first line. (laughs) Um, then there was really heavy handed motifs in the beginning that didn't carry through the blinking red light was like this big thing in the beginning. You know, the, the stress call coming in was a blinking red light. And then, you know, uh, there was a blinking red light in the med deck while Kirk was working out. And then his vital signs were this blinking red light and they played this blinking red light really hard for the first 10 minutes. And then it just went away. It's like some artsy fartsy choice. And then they decided just not they to go just with it. got rid of it. <laughs> um, and they were, and this is, I don't know, just a weird choice. They were real quick to forgive and forget at the end. About what? About like the, this alien race toying with them. True. And maybe it's because of the like false perception that it's a kid. Like maybe that's what it was, but it just felt really weird because. You know, it it feels like the oldest trick in the book of like this alien race did all this dickish stuff to you, and they show up, and he's like, "Congratulations, you've passed." I'm so Tanya. But like, really? How do you know that this was really a test, and he's not just fucked now? So of course he's being nice to you. True. <laughs> like the, the the turn there was way too quick, and plus the the plan is so convoluted. Yes. So this is how they test other races. They they have this buoy abuse them. When the, the alien race inevitably does something about it, a huge ship shows up to threaten them. They When they don't comply, another smaller ship takes them to a planet and then fakes failing <laughs> and fakes a distress call to see what the other race will do in vengeance. Right. And this is what they do with all alien races they encounter. 
not not the most effective or efficient method for sure. But because that convolution, it makes me extra think that it was just all bullshit. Like this wasn't a test. The plan just went horribly wrong for this alien. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. And at the end, that he tricks them into leaving him with a hostage. Like, like yeah, <laughs> this, this alien's a friggin' genius. <laughs> <laughs> I, my plan came to fruition. <laughs> Uh, there was also at the end where they finally revealed we're like I thought they did a really good job with the dub oh for the kid yeah yeah they did a really good job but like he they must have told him to sit in some weird position because he was almost like a mannequin it was weird it's like his leg leg was up in a weird position it was strange he had really big hands for a child it was really weird well Clint Howard's kind of goofy looking as it is leave that man odd looking duck <laughs> um and then the Baylock puppet looked really fake and not like in a good way right that's why i think it almost kind of works that it actually is fake in the long run but i know but it, the thing is is that they clearly didn't want you to know it was fake because then every time you saw it they had that wavy screen effect over it right i really wish they would have just put a guy like in some prosthetics or something that would have been nice yeah I think it just would have looked better front to back and they wouldn't have had to do that wavy screen thing. Or if they could have redone the puppet with the remaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would have been nice. Um, but also, I, th- I think like the Muppet episode we watched, this is not top of the heap for me, but it's not the worst. All right. So definitely some good parts. A couple good laughs, certainly. Yeah. And I just thought there was surprisingly good moments between Kirk, Spock and Bones who become like the big trio of this whole series in the movies. Oh, um, OK. So let me address this. Sure. So this was the first one filmed after the pilot. Yeah. This one, this just shows the consistency issues. This one felt more like the Star Trek I'd come to expect than ones that were filmed after it. I agree. It's weird. Like Charlie X and some of those ones that don't include Sulu or Ahura or Bones or Scotty. But the gang was all here for this. They all had a moment. Yeah. It was really strange. It's really strange to see them regress like that. Especially knowing that this was filmed first. Yeah. And I think after this, things are more kind of like in the production air order makes sense. And all the costumes are right. And so I keep saying that every week, though, because there's always something weird going on. But I definitely noticed like Ahura didn't have her her standard red. Right. She was in that tan. It's disconcerting. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just weird that they hit their mark early and then went away from it. Right. And now they'll get back to it, which is good. That's right. So I got a, I got a question. All right. So Baylock, when he introduced himself, is the commander of the flagship Viserys of the First Federation. Mm hmm. And when the Starship Enterprise introduces themselves, they're like the United Earth Starship Enterprise. Right. <laughs> this did they like? Is this the Federation? No. Did, so uh, did they join the Federation after this interaction? So this was filmed first. So it was also before they kind of got a handle on what they were calling themselves. So they're okay. They're the the Federation United Federation of planets is what it becomes. And it was just an accident. Uh, the first okay. Federation doesn't come back surprisingly in any Canon, but in books it does come back and they're like um, with their shared knowledge, they do kind of help assist the federal, the regular Federation to kind of build their Federation because they're, they're off some and far off reaches of space and they've had a Federation for thousands of years. Okay. Um, but that's, 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 I did read that's canon somewhere. I did read somewhere that that alcohol that he gives them comes up in like deep space nine or something. It does. Yes. Um, Tranya sticks around. Okay. 
And you can find recipes to make Tranya now online, like real Tranya. It's kind of I'm fun. glad that made the cut. And also, uh, Clint Howard said he hated that because um, it was grapefruit juice. <laughs> and he said he hated grapefruit juice. And so he had just uh, his dad forced him to drink it. He's like, you're going to act and you're going to like it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was terrible. And then, he, and then he gave him a little bit of opium and sent him out there. <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, is that man. your only question? Yeah, that was it. That was my question. All right. <laughs> Do we have any Trek connection, Muppet connections this week? Oh, boy. Do I have some Trek connections? All right. So Leonard Nimoy made a random appearance on the Carol Burnett show, where Harvey Corman got most of his notoriety from, in a sketch called Mrs. Invisible Man, mm-hmm. where Carol Burnett plays the wife of the Invisible Man and has an invisible baby. Okay. In the sketch, she receives an antidote for the baby to turn invisible. The Invisible Man says, you can't test it on a baby. I'll test it. Walks off stage with the medicine, and who comes back? Leonard Nimoy as Spock, uh, <laughs> insinuating that Leonard Nimoy Spock is the Invisible Man. That's so it random. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird. Uh, okay, so this one's even stranger. So in 1969, there was an old school Emmy category called Special Classification of Individual Achievements. Okay, this was a kind of catch-all category that recognized outstanding work in all these different fields that didn't just, that didn't fit anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nominees were named from different disciplines and two Emmys were awarded for this category. Uh, Star Trek, more specifically the Westheimer company that did the optical effects uh, was nominated for this award, but who took home one of the two awards that year, Harvey Corman for the Carol Burnett show. (laughs) So random. Um, so, and then of course, Clint Howard, who played Baylock, brother of Ron Howard, whose production company, Imagine Entertainment, produced several of Frank Oz's films later, hmm. including The House Sitter, starring Steve Martin, who hosted The Muppet Show, as well as Bowfinger, also starring Steve Martin. Uh huh. And now, my final one uh, The Weekender did a review of the 2015, I think, Ron Howard film, In the Heart of the Sea the retelling of the Moby Dick story. Uh Well, they did not care for the movie. (laughs) And this is the quote. Listen, if I have to sit through a Ron Howard movie, Clint Howard's Muppety caveman face better be front and center (laughs) because he's literally the only thing I like about his brother's bland exercises. Oh my God. (laughs) So, so Clint Howard's Muppety caveman face (laughs) was the quote. That's the last Muppet Muppet Connection Trek connection I could find. That's a very appropriate Muppety caveman (laughs) face. Oh, my God. Uh, And those have been the Trek connections for the week. That's pretty wonderful. So we have some similarities between these two episodes, believe it or not. That's right. I found them. Uh, So my first one, uh, Harvey Corman, as Maurice the Magnificent, thinks that the creature in the cage is a monster and should be feared and beaten down when really it's an adorable, loving creature. Just like how Lieutenant Bailey is always wanting to shoot and destroy Baylock and is scared of his appearance when really he's just lovable Clint Howard. That's right. I had something very, very similar. Something <laughs> perceived as dangerous ends up being gentle and sweet. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, both involve people losing their cool. Bailey on the command deck facing death and Kermit in Fozzie's comedy act just loses. Both of them lose their minds. It's true. <laughs> Uh, Rolf in the uh, veterinary hospital sketch is not doing his best work because he is overworked and stressed, just like Lieutenant uh, Bailey. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, both feature bald headed characters with extreme eyebrows. 
<laughs> the balloon-headed dancer in the at the dance sketch and uh, Baylock. <laughs> bald-headed characters with crazy eyebrows. And speaking of bald heads, uh, Clint Howard also said that about they wanted him to actually shave his head for the role, but he was afraid to be made fun of in school, so they gave him a bald cap. Yeah, that was what he was going to get made fun <laughs> yeah, of. Yeah, not his Muppety Caveman face. Muppety Caveman face. <laughs> uh, is that all your similarities, sir? Yeah, but what's that noise? I, I don't know. Do you hear something? Oh, oh, oh God. Transporter malfunction. Transporter malfunction. All right, this is the part of the show where we transport one character from one episode to the other episode and vice versa. Uh, so what do you got for us, Steve? So I, I have Thog the big blue monster taking the place of Baylock's puppet. <laughs> That's appropriate. Yeah. You've, you violated our space, <laughs> but you're doing a real good job and you're very attractive. <laughs> and then his ears lift cutely. Oh, uh, I have Lieutenant Bailey to switch places with Maurice the Magnificent. Cause he would be good at playing the exasperated lion tamer. <laughs> yeah. Like overreactionary and really cracking that whip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get in the cage. Shoot him, Captain. <laughs> Blast him. Uh, I've got uh, Baylock taking the place of Robin on halfway down the stairs. Because <laughs> I think it would be just just cute to see little goofy looking Ron Howard sitting halfway <laughs> down the stairs singing just a real sweet song. So that's funny because my other one is Robin would switch places with Baylock because <laughs> he would be cuter and less creepy. I would also have to sit there in like a weird stationary position because yeah, he's a puppet. He's a puppet. <laughs> and it'd be funny them saying, "Oh, look, it's just this Baylock is just a puppet." And then he turned to the right and talked to Robin, who's also a puppet. Who's also just a puppet. <laughs> better, yeah, it would be better if the Baylock was a guy in prosthetics. <laughs> yes, that would make more sense. And they cut over to Robin, who's just a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> but if he's like, "Hey, when you want some Tranya, <laughs> just be really cute." It's like flies in there and stuff. Be adorable. <laughs> exactly. So I guess that brings us to the end of episode 10 of the Muppet Trek podcast. Join us next time for episode 11 of the Muppet show with special guest star Candace Bergen and original series episode, the menagerie part one. We'll do part two in the next episode. So from the lovers, the dreamers and us live long and prosper everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. 